lapel mic this morning so you can move around, but since I didn't, you'll just have to yell if we walk past the thing. You okay with that? All right, everybody, oh, I could say, see, every, you can, you can do that. In Tanzania, they always said, give a warm Tanzanian welcome to Brother Bram and Kenneth. So instead of that, let's give a warm Albert Billion welcome to Brother Chris as he comes to preach to us this morning. Come on, brother. All right, I'm going to go ahead and unhook this thing because I just know that's how it's going to be. Okay. <laughs> I'm that, uh, it reminds you of that joke uh, about the, the preacher who was going back on forth on the stage and he was yelling and spitting and screaming when he was preaching and the kid leans over and said to mom and to his mom, I'm sure glad they got him on a leash. <laughs> so <laughs> it is really great to be back here this morning and to be with all of y'all. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's an enjoyment to me to look around and there's so many people here that we know that have, that have come and been part of our lives and, and that have been so faithful and, and prayed for us over the years. And so this, this church feels a lot like home. It's just wonderful to come uh, to a place like this. And I'm really excited to tell you about the things that the Lord is doing um, in the Muslim world. And I'm also wanting to talk to you today a little bit about how we view persecution. That's what I really want to talk with you about today. Because that's so much in the news these days. If you've been watching the news, then you've been noticing around the world how many, how many Christians are being persecuted. The bombings and the, and the killings and the, and the purgings and the ethnic cleansing that's happening around the world of, of Christians. And how should we view that? And I will tell you this. I think a lot of the things that I'm going to talk with you about today, you've already heard preached from this pulpit. Because I know Brad's heart and I know he's already said a lot of these things. Uh, maybe they'll sound familiar to you. Uh, but I want to turn, uh, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. That's going to be my primary text for the day in Acts chapter 9. Um, so I want to uh, give a little background. Why Acts chapter 9? So the background in 7 and 8, uh, we see the stoning of Stephen, uh, the first person who was killed for the name of Christ, the first martyr of the church. And one of the things that we notice there is that Saul was present holding the coats of the people or guarding the coats of the people who stoned Stephen to death. And Saul, uh, Paul later said about himself, he said, I was there giving approval to those who killed him. And so we can see in the beginning that Saul is a dangerous person. He's a murderous person. Uh, in fact, in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He was a terrorist. Saul was a terrorist. And one of the most dangerous things about Saul was that he thought he was doing the right thing. Sometimes people will do incredibly wicked and horrible things, and they think they're doing the right thing. And those are the most dangerous people because their conscience won't convict them. Their conscience won't stop them from doing what they're doing because they think they're doing the right thing. And that's the kind of person Saul was. And so he's very much like some of the, the terrorists we see in the news today. Some of the very people who are persecuting the church around the world are people like Saul. They think they're doing it for a good reason, and that's what makes it so dangerous because their own conscience can't convict them of what they're doing. So this is one of the things that I want to talk about today is how do we view the persecution of the church around the world. But I want to start out with pictures of adorable children because everybody loves pictures of adorable children. So I want to talk with you a little bit about uh, what we're doing in Tyre. And uh, I was telling Randy this morning, 
uh, that this I love this work because it's a new work. It's like nothing that the Lord has really done in us before. Um, it's it's a it's a new thing that He's doing, and I'm very excited about it. We're we're in the refugee camps, in people's homes. We're part of their daily life there in the camp. And all of our ministry is in the midst of the people. We're not bringing the people to us, but we're very much uh, trying to be an incarnation uh, of the love of Christ in the camps. And so this is our third location. We actually started a couple of years ago, and I talked with you when I was here last year about this work. This is our newest location, our third location in Mashuk, and we're still teaching the same three basic things. We're teaching Arabic literacy, reading and writing. We're teaching mathematics. All of it's taught in Arabic, and we're teaching Bible. Those are the, the core things that we teach in each location. And this is a picture that I took of some of the kids in our newest location here. And I wish that I could say this was about the Bible lesson or about the math math lesson, you know, that they were this excited. Because look in their eyes. They're just like full of excitement and joy and anticipation. We actually had a magician who came. <laughs> And so he was pulling a rabbit out of the hat, and I just happened to get that moment. You know, the, the kids were all, wow. I want at some point, I want them to look at the Word of God this way. I want them to look into the Word of God and have that same kind of fascination and joy. And, and, and that's, a, that's a work that the Holy Spirit is doing. But we're continuing this program uh, in three locations, and we also still have this next slide is a picture of our women's ministries. The lady who's second from the left, I'll talk a good bit more about her later. Her name is Siham. She leads our women's ministry that we now have in two of our locations. One of the things that I love most about what Siham is doing through this women's ministry is I love going to class and hearing the women come up front. These are all Muslim women. I love hearing the women come up front and tell Bible stories that they've learned from her as part of their class. They'll come up and they'll tell Bible stories from memory that they've learned, and I'm really excited that she's planting the Word of God in these women in such a way that they know it. They don't have to, to, to wonder what the Bible says. They're learning it, and I love that part of her ministry. It's very exciting what she's doing. And so these are the, the two primary ministries that we have going on right now. So let's go to the next slide. And that's going to actually take up uh, in verse 15... But I want to sort of go through the text on the way up to 15 because there's a lot of things here that I want to try to bring out. We know that Saul, with murder on his mind, went to Damascus. He wasn't going to settle a few legal issues. He was going to get some people killed. He wanted to see some Christians die, and he wanted to stomp out that church. Now, when Jesus comes to him on the road, look in verse 4 at what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people or why are you persecuting my church? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus takes it personally when his people, when his church are persecuted. It's an attack on him. Wherever people are suffering for his name, he's there with them. And he's feeling their pain and he's feeling their suffering. He said to, to Saul, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Because he took it personally. And then he said, and of course we're down here in verse 5 now, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he's being really upfront with Saul. You're, you're coming after me, Saul. I'm Jesus, the one you're coming after. And so this was, a, this was a powerful revelation for Saul. And of course we know that Saul was blinded. So now let's go down to verse 10. 
And before I, before I read verse 10 and talk about it, I want to explain to you why verse 10 and the, and the text shortly after it are so powerful in my life. A lot of times Muslims will come to me with dreams and visions. That's something wonderful that the Holy Spirit is doing all over the Muslim world. People who don't have access to a Bible, people who don't access, have access to a church, are having dreams about Jesus. And these dreams are bringing them to go find a Christian and ask. And so we've had people who've called us from across the other side of Lebanon wanting to know more about Jesus. I'll tell you a story of some people who showed up at church one day wanting to know more about Jesus. I'll, I'll tell you about that later. But it's, it's happening all around the Muslim world. And one of the things that I always tell them when they say, what do you think my dream means? And I say, well, I'm not an interpreter of dreams, but I'll tell you this. I believe that you had this dream so that we can go to the Word of God and we can look at what God has to say about your situation. And if your dream agrees with what God's Word says, then let's, let's look at what your dream might mean. But if it disagrees with the Word of God, then I know for sure I can tell you that dream was not from God because he's not going to disagree with himself. And so one of the things that I love about this text that I'm about to read you is I had a vision years ago from God of this particular text. Um, and so I know it was from God because it was not a, not, a, not a strange dream about something that I don't know what it meant, but it was this particular Bible text that the Lord put in my mind. I was walking through the chicken house one day. Some of y'all may remember that I used to be a chicken farmer here in Marshall County. And I was praying to the Lord, and I was saying, you know, Lord, we, we're going to go to Lebanon, and we're going to get off of a plane, and we're going to do something. But I don't know what that something is, Lord, that we're going to do when we're there. What is the thing that we're going to do when we hit the ground? And the Lord brought this to me in such a powerful way that I really just, I, right there in the chicken house, I went to my knees praying about this Bible verse I'm about to read you. So let's read the verse, and then I'll tell you about how the Lord brought this to me in a powerful way. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Isn't this wonderful that the Lord has given each one of them a vision about the other one? He's come to each one and spoke to them about the other one. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Do you sense when you read this that Ananias was a little concerned about going to visit Saul? I read in this, Ananias is going, Lord, I, I, I know about that Saul guy. I've heard the news about what Saul is doing. He, he came here to kill us, Lord. <laughs> you don't want to accidentally go to the wrong Saul, right? So I just want to make sure, Lord, is this the guy you're talking about? You don't want to accidentally go visit Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> so, he, you know, we sense that Ananias is, is clearing up things here. Lord, I've heard of this guy. You know, I've, I've heard the news about who he is. Now, oftentimes we have the same concern, many of us do, about Muslims that Ananias had about Saul. We say, well, Lord, I've, I've, I've seen the news about what those people are doing, and I, I, I know what, what they're up to, and I know who they are, and I know what they believe. Or, you know, I, I'm not so sure about this, Lord. But here's the thing. Ananias, I'm, I'm going to grant this, Ananias had every good reason to be suspicious of Saul. Saul was really coming to murder him. 
That was actually what Saul was doing. And so Ananias had heard this and he had every reason to be suspicious. But do you know that the Lord did not grant him a pass because of that? Because he said, you know, this is the thing. Ananias had heard what the news said about Saul, but Ananias is about to hear what the Lord says about Saul. Those are two different things. What the news says about Saul and what the Lord says about Saul are two different things. So in verse 15, But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let me read that last part again. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is the hard pill that we have to swallow today. God has chosen some people to suffer for his name. He has chosen, he has ordained, he has commanded some who will suffer for his name. Sometimes I, I tell people that, and, and it's like I've hit them over the head with a baseball bat. How could God do that? How could God choose that someone will suffer? But you, and we'll talk a lot about that. Why would God choose that someone will suffer? Why, why would he do that? But we can't deny what the text says here. God chose that Saul would suffer for his name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I'll, I'll read more about that in a minute. But it's important to stop at Brother Saul there. So we see Ananias making this journey, okay? He didn't go to Saul, and he didn't say, Saul, you murderous lout that came here to kill me and everyone I love. He didn't say, Saul, you persecutor of the church who deserves to go to hell. He said, Brother Saul. So we see the obedience of Ananias here. We see the Lord give him this task that he had every right to be afraid of, that he had every right to be hesitant about, to go to this known terrorist and put his hands on him and pray for him. And when he went and put his hands on this known terrorist, Saul, he said, Brother Saul, are we willing to do what Ananias did here? Are we willing to go to someone that we have every right to be suspicious of, to think they're up to no good? And it doesn't have to be a Muslim terrorist. It doesn't have to be, as Saul was, uh, a Jewish terrorist. It could be someone in the community here that we've heard all sorts of things about and how dangerous they are. But if the Lord tells us, go to that person and witness to that person in the name of Jesus, are we willing to go and put our hand on them and say brother or sister to that person? This is what Ananias did. And so the reason this is so powerful to me is that when the Lord brought me this vision of this, this uh, scripture, he said, I'm not sending you to be Paul. I'm raising up Paul among the Muslim people, and I'm sending you, Ananias, to put your hands on them and pray for them that their eyes will be opened, and I will show them how much they must suffer for my name. And that was hard for me to get because, you know, I don't like for my friends to suffer. And I'll talk to you today about some of my friends who are suffering. And as a, as a friend, as someone who loves them, I want it to stop. I don't want them to suffer. And so often when we pray for the persecuted church around the world, what we pray is, Lord, will you end their suffering? Will you end their persecution? But we ignore the fact of what the scripture says here, that God has chosen some to suffer for his name. It's his will that some will suffer for his name. 
it's a glory and an honor that he's given to some. He's not given it to me, but he's given it to others to suffer for his name. And so when we pray, Lord, will you end their suffering, what we're really praying is, Lord, will you end your kingdom work? Lord, will you stop saving people? Lord, will you quiet your witness in the world? Lord, will you stop the work of the kingdom of God? We're praying against the will of God when we do that. What should we be praying in their lives? There's a harder prayer that I think we're afraid to pray. And it's a much harder prayer. The harder prayer is, Lord, how can I comfort them? Lord, how can I be alongside them? How can I let them know that they're not alone, that they're not forgotten? Lord, what can I do? Will you use me, Lord, to strengthen them in their time of suffering so that the name of Jesus can be glorified in their lives? That's what, that's what Ananias did. He went to Saul and he put his hand on him and he prayed for him. We're going to talk today about some of our brothers and sisters that are, that are suffering for the name of Christ. But let's remember that the first thing Ananias did was he went and he called him Brother Saul. Let's go to this next picture. So this is Abu Miriam. Abu Miriam is one of our teachers. All of the people that I'm going to talk to you about today are teachers in our educational program. Now, this is the best part that I haven't told you yet. All of the people who are working in our program in the camp with women and children are Muslims who've come to faith in Christ. They're Muslims who've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been saved, have been baptized, and now they're carrying the gospel to their people. And I'm, I pinch myself sometimes when I think, did the Lord give me people like this to work with? Did it, he's really raising up Paul's, not in the sense that they're going to write scripture. I don't want you to get me wrong here, but Paul's in the sense that they're going to carry the gospel to their people. And so I'm so excited that the Lord lets me work with people like this. He was actually born a Muslim in Egypt and came to faith because he knew some Christians who were good witnesses to him. And he got his hands on a Bible and he read it and he came to faith in Christ. The first church that he went to rejected him. They wouldn't let him come in. I wish I could tell you that was unusual, but that's almost always the case in the Middle East when Muslims come to Christ. I went to uh, Jordan and I interviewed nine men from a Muslim background and all nine of them were rejected by the first church they went to. This is normal. You say, well, why would a church reject someone who came and said, I've been saved? Well, suspicion. Are they here for money? Are they a government spy? Are they going to marry one of our women and take her off and put a hijab on her? The, the churches have all these suspicions, and so they, they, they don't let the Muslims in. Sometimes the churches are afraid of the persecution that they will suffer if they take a Muslim into their midst. They're afraid of what the Muslims in the community will do to them, and they're not willing to pay that price. He actually had to move to another part of Egypt and take on a better-sounding, Christian-y-sounding name and let people think he was born a Christian. And he actually was accepted by a church once they thought he was born a Christian. He's a good old boy. Come on in. You're one of us now because he had a Christian-y sounding name. So he ended up living in that church and marrying a lady. He told her the story before they got married. Um, and they did ministry in that church. Later on, he was, he was actually in need of some legal work, and he went to a lawyer in the church. And the lawyer saw his real legal name and identity and outed him to the church and to the community. He was, there were three attempts to kill him in Egypt. And he and his wife fled to Lebanon. They're refugees from Egypt. 
And they serve with us now in Tyre. And they have this adorable little baby girl, uh, Miriam. She's, she's such a, a, a cute child. Uh, she was born after they came to Lebanon. Imagine suffering a persecution where not even the church is a safe haven for you. You don't even have the people of God around you to help you or support you or encourage you. Imagine that you're persecuted in such a way that not even the church will help you. There are Muslims who are coming to Christ who are suffering that kind of persecution in the Middle East. These are our brothers and sisters, and they have no one alongside them. Even the church has abandoned them. Let's go to this next slide. I'm going to take up in verse 17. And it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples about at Damascus. So now we see the, the baptism of Saul. Saul has been baptized here. And I want to tell you the story of a lady here, this next slide. So I'm, talked about, I'm, I'm going to talk about a couple of Pauls, but she's a Paulette. So the person of importance here is in the middle of that picture, this lady, Siham. I told you earlier that she does all of our women's ministry. And I'm so blessed that the Lord has raised her up and given her a passion and a vision and a, and a gift. She's gifted in this, in reaching women with the gospel of Christ. And, and she's, he's allowed Kim and I to be a part of her life and to encourage her and disciple her. Uh, the Lord's doing great things with her. She was afraid for a long time to be baptized. And you think, well, is she like hydrophobic or something? It's not the water at all. But she was afraid for her husband to find out. That's her husband in the picture there with her and their daughter, Abrar. She was so afraid he would find out. Now, he knows that she comes and teaches and she goes to church. He knows that she studies the Bible and he likes those things because he says it makes her a better wife. There's something scriptural about that, isn't there, about the wife being a witness to the unbelieving husband. And so she's that in her home. But with Muslims getting baptized, that's crossing a line. That's the point of no return. You've burned your bridges and gone over to the other camp, and you're no longer one of us. And so she's so very afraid that he would find out that she got baptized because she would lose her daughter. He could immediately put her out on the street. He's already threatened to marry another woman, not even knowing about her baptism. And so she could lose the ability to ever see her daughter again. She'd be out on the street. He might not even divorce her. He might just put her out on the street and stay married to her and marry another wife. I know men who've done that. And so this is a very real concern for her. And she was afraid that someone would find out she'd been baptized and let her husband know. So she feared it for a long time. But she was at church one day and she saw a brother from Christ, a brother from the Muslim background, get baptized in the church when he came to Christ. And she was convicted by that. In fact, she had a dream about that. She had a dream about a man in a white robe coming up out of the water. And she said, you know, the Lord is convicting me. The Lord is, I need to be baptized. She said, I can't teach those women in the camps to be obedient to Christ if I'm not obedient to him myself in my baptism. And so she was baptized uh, a few months ago. She was baptized. And, and we were really excited that she had made that decision. But imagine a persecution that was so strong that you were afraid for your own husband or wife 
to know about the dis- the person that you're closest to in the world or should be. Imagine that you were afraid of that person, what they would do to you if you found out, if they found out you were following Christ. That's a serious persecution that you can't even trust your husband and wife. Let's go to the next slide. Read more here about about Saul. So we're going to skip down now to verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here we see Saul, after he's been baptized, he grows in strength, the Bible says. And he went into the synagogues preaching. This is the man who came to kill Christians, and now he's in the synagogues preaching the cross of Christ and the message of Jesus. And the people were confused by that. Who is this guy? He came here to kill Christians, and is he one of them now? He grew in strength, and he went into the synagogues preaching. And here's the interesting thing. He confounded the Jews. Confounded the Jews. That means that they were unable to answer his arguments. He was preaching and proving that Jesus was the Christ, and they had no response for that. They were confounded. They were powerlessly confused by what he said and by what he taught. They had no way to respond to him. So you would think that if, if, if someone presented to you arguments that you knew were true, you had no way to refute them, that you'd be convinced by those, you would think that some of them would be saved because Paul had proven that Jesus was the Christ. But we see in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Let me bring this home to you in a way that all of you will understand. Who in here has ever won an argument on Facebook? (laughs) That thing will never happen. (laughs) It's never going to happen. And so when we see Paul going into the synagogue and preaching, the Lord was not saving people in that synagogue, but the Lord was sharing and spreading the message of Christ. And we see that Paul uh, is, is, is about to start the suffering here because it said when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The Jews plotted to kill him. Let's go to that next picture. So this is Yasser. Um, some of you may remember Yasser because he's been a friend of mine for a long time. Uh, he, was actually, he actually came to Christ through the church plant that we worked up in Horsh before we moved down to where we're at now. And so we've known him uh, as a wonderful friend and, and brother for some years. And the thing about Yasser is that he's come to faith in a way that, that his family saw happening gradually. That's kind of how I would describe it. And so as he began reading the Bible more and coming to church more, his family began saying, Yasser, what are you doing? You know, you're going to become one of these Christians and... and, and and so as, as time has gone on and they've, they've come to the idea that this Yasser has, has become a Christian, he's not one of us anymore, they've begun sending him death threats. Now, he's let me listen to some of these death threats, and these are not like Alabama death threats. When we make a death threat in Alabama, it's something like, if I ever see him, I'll kill him. He better not come around here, or I'll kill him. That's how we make like a, a, a redneck death threat. But these are judicial death threats. Here's what you've done. You've become an apostate. And the Quran says this about someone who's abandoned his religion. And the penalty for your apostasy is death. And we're going to carry out this sentence and execute you 
And so they're very much reading to him a legal verdict. They're very serious about this. This is not somebody blowing off steam. And this is from his own family. This is from his own brothers that are sending him these messages. People from his own village in Syria are sending him these messages. Imagine a persecution that was so bad that your own brother or sister really was serious about killing you. This is a person you grew up with and spent your life with at home. And, you know, brothers and sisters think about killing each other from time to time. That's sometimes that's part of the, of the sibling relationship, but we're not serious about it. But his brothers and some of his family are serious about killing him. What kind of persecution is that when your own blood turns against you? The people that should love you no matter what turn against you and really intend to kill you. So let me tell you something that Yasser did that's just an incredible work of the Holy Spirit. A member of his family passed away, and they had a public observance of mourning. And he said, I'm going to go to that. And I was like, Yasser, you know, these are the people who are going to kill you. And he said, well, it's a public place. They won't, they won't do it in a public setting. They'll, they'll make sure they can get away with it. So he went to this family gathering, and as soon as he walked in the door, his older brother laid into him. He said, I know who you are, and I know what you've done, and I know what you believe. Why don't you lay it out here on the table in front of everybody? And Yasser said, I'll lay it out here in front of everybody. I have a problem in my life, and my problem is sin. And I've never had a solution for my sin problem. But now I'm saved, and I have a solution for my sin. And then he said to his brother, what solution do you have for your sin? And his brother said nothing. His brother was confounded. In the same way that Saul confounded the Jews, Yasser confounded his brother there in front of his family. Yasser said, you know, I felt like I probably should go at that time to another home. <laughs> because, because he knew, he knew, he, he knew what happened to Saul, you know, that they, that they plotted to kill him. But here's the great thing about this. He went to another house that evening. Some of his nephews and cousins followed him. Not to kill him, they asked him for Bibles. He called me on the phone. He said, I need to get some Bibles. Do you know where I can get some Bibles? And I helped him find a Bible store he could go to and get some Bibles and buy them. And he handed out seven Bibles while he was there among his family and did a Bible study with them. They were up till all hours of the night, and he's sending me pictures of his Bible study. He's so excited with his family because they're wanting to know more about Christ. And he's leading people in his family now to Christ. He's witnessing to them openly. He called me a week or so ago and asked about getting five more Bibles. He's handed out 12 now among his nephews and cousins who wanted to know more about Christ because they saw him confound his brother. That was such a powerful witness. And so I want you to look at these stories now that I've told you, and I want you to see why the Lord chooses some to suffer for the sake of his name. It's not a random thing. It's not that he wants to see them suffer, but he wants to see the name of Christ spread. You know, if you, if you look back in history, there are some people who were always the first one out. They were the explorers. They were the people who went first. And they were the ones who suffered the most, the worst conditions. There are many stories of missionaries, Hudson Taylor and people like that, who went to places and suffered so much and sometimes died for the sake of the name of Christ but always for a purpose. The purpose is that their people are going to hear the gospel and that the Lord is saving some of their people 
through the suffering of a few. This is the way that he's reaching the nations with Christ. Yasser told me one day, he said, his wife came in one day and saw that he'd been crying. And she said, are you, are you crying over what we've lost? Because they, they lost everything. They had a beautiful home in Damascus. He had a, a career as a professional educator. They were doing really well. And now they're living in an in a, in a, in a unfinished building and, and just scraping by as refugees. They lost everything. He said, I'm not crying over what we've lost. I'm crying because God had to break my country, Syria, to bring me here so I could hear the gospel. He gets it. He understands what the Lord is doing. He understands that the most important thing is the glorification of Christ and that some people are going to suffer for the name of Christ so that others can hear that message. And their suffering is not for no reason. It's for the best of reasons. And the glory of God is, is being revealed through them as a witness among their people. Yasser is suffering this persecution from his own family, but look what the Lord is doing, even in his own family, bringing people to Christ through that suffering. So when we ask ourselves the question of what we ought to do, I want to go back to the prayer that we ought to pray and the question that we ought to do. What is our response when we see the church being persecuted? It shouldn't be to pray that it will stop because we don't know what the Lord is doing. We don't know what the Lord is doing through that persecution and that suffering. Maybe, like Yasser's family, many are hearing the gospel. We're seeing the kingdom being built. Let's not pray for that to stop, but let's pray the prayer that's hard for us to pray. How can I help them? What can I do to be alongside them and let them know that they're not forgotten, that they have brothers and sisters who are with them in this suffering, that are willing to be alongside them in every step of this? That's the prayer that's hard for us to pray, but that's how we need to respond to this. So let me go to this, this picture here. So it's been a few months ago now that this, these families came. This were Kurdish Muslim families. And I was at church one morning. And they showed up outside after church was over, and I went out and talked to them. And they said, we believed in Jesus. Will someone come to our village and teach us about Jesus? And I said, yeah, we'll come and teach you about Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's just coming to people and bringing them. And, you know, we read about these things in the Bible, and we, we try to understand what they mean, but now we see them happening. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And Jesus is just drawing people. He's just bringing them because he wants to save them. And so we started going to their village, uh, Abu Miriam, the first man that I told you his story from Egypt. He and I started going to their village on Tuesday nights and doing a Bible study. Since then, two more families have joined in. It's growing, this home meeting among these people. And so we're doing this Bible study. They came to church and got baptized. We had a big old baptism that day. We baptized four, uh, 16 in one day. And so it was just a wonderful day that we had when we had all of these Muslims that came to the church and got baptized. That's the Holy Spirit doing a great work, a great work among his people. And so I want to encourage you by telling you this is the fruit. This is the fruit of what I've been telling you about today, that God is saving. He's bringing nations to him. This is what's happening around the world. So I would like to uh, talk to you now about how you can maybe be part of what the Lord is doing. You may be saying, you know what? Those brothers and sisters are suffering, and I'd like to come alongside them. I'd like to do something for them. What do I do? We can pray. We can pray the right prayer. Lord, help them suffer well. Lord, will you strengthen them so that they can, they can glorify Christ in their suffering? 
Will you bring them people to comfort and encourage them? Will you bring people who will suffer with them? Help them to suffer well, Lord. We could use your support, and thank you. As Brad said earlier, this church has supported us since the very beginning, uh, since the post office days. Y'all have, y'all have been with us, and so I thank you for that. Uh, we're, we, we pay teacher salaries. We rent classrooms. We buy textbooks. Uh, we buy Bibles. We do all of these things uh, that are part of our work. And also, you can come and be with us, and several people in the church have. Uh, I'm looking at faces here that have been with us and, and, and very grateful that some of y'all have come and, and been alongside us in the work. I'd love for y'all to bring a team and be with us entire this next year. We have a, a room in our home. You get to stay with us, and, and uh, we'll let you work in the camps. Uh, if you'd like to come alongside these very teachers that I've told you about, would you like to come alongside them and encourage them in their work? So I want to have a time of prayer now. Um, and then Brad, I, I guess... Whatever y'all want to do after that. After service, uh, my daughters will be in the back. We've actually got some calligraphy that was done by some of our ladies in Tyre that was handwritten, and we've got prints of that if you'd like to look at those out back. So let us pray. Father, we come before you so thankful that you give us an opportunity to be part of what you're doing. Lord, you are moving nations. You are moving nations to save some people. And, Father, you're letting us be a part of that. Thank you for that privilege and that honor. Lord, we pray for those that you've chosen to suffer for your name. Lord, we don't pray that the suffering will end because you're using that for the glory of Christ to save people. So, Lord, we pray that Jesus will be glorified in that, and we pray that they'll be strengthened. Lord, that they'll be encouraged and help us to be a part of that. Help us to be willing to come alongside them and say, Brother, I'm here with you. Sister, I'm here with you. Father, we just pray that Jesus will be glorified here in Marshall County through New Covenant and their work here in this area, Lord. There are those here who are poor, who are marginalized, who are outcast in this very place that need someone to come and put their hand on them and say, Brother, I'm here with you that Jesus would be glorified here and in all the nations because he alone is worthy. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.